Welcome to Disruption Blueprint with Shannon Spotswood from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help advisors grow their net worth, build their businesses, and maximize their independence. We've built an award-winning platform with innovative technology, comprehensive service, and a team of individuals who are experts in their field to serve advisors. Join us for this journey where we explore everything that has to do with running an independent advisor practice as we bring together successful advisors, industry experts, and innovative minds who are on the bleeding edge to challenge the status quo, foster new ideas, and create a path for advisors to unleash their growth potential. Now, on to the show. Disruption Blueprint was previously known as War Room Huddle. Please continue to enjoy this content as you build your practice for the future. Welcome to War Room Huddle, where we empower independent financial advisors to be the CEO of their practice, not the COO. Today is going to be awesome. We are in the studio with Bobby White, the founder and CEO of RFG Advisor. He is also a financial advisor, so this is going to be a really impactful conversation. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Shannon. How are you today? I'm fabulous. I'm not as good as you because I'm not on my uh, way to a hunting camp. I know. I am pumped. Got one of my best friends and one of our board members, as you know. Matter of fact, I think we're going to get to this day is the person who introduced us five and a half, almost six years ago, uh, invited me down to um, his club to uh, bird hunt today. So, I'm an avid bird hunter. I love to do it, and this will be my last hunt of the season. So I'm pretty. I'm pretty pumped. Yeah, pretty it's a it's a good day for a Friday a after a, a, Friday. a great week for us. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into it. Uh, you founded RFG Advisory in 2003, mm-hmm. and about 10 years later, around 2013, 2014, you went on what you call a crusade for growth. So can you share with us the story of the founding of RFG and, and that growth crusade? Wow. So, you know, the, the founding of RFG and what it looked like for the 10, 12 years before tearing the house down and rebuilding what we affectionately call RFG 2.0 were two totally different companies, as you know. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it is, it is a pretty cool story. I mean, the, uh, I started in the business as a financial advisor in 1997, beginning of 1998, and uh, went to work. Prior to that, I owned a little small business. I sold that business and found out that I I wasn't passionate about what I did as far as the operations of that business. I found out I quadrupled the size of it over a four-year period of time before I sold it. And uh, so I found out I was pretty good at making business decisions, and I knew I wanted to go back into business for myself but I didn't know what. And I told, uh, I told my wife, I'm like, we, she was working in Birmingham. I was working in, a, in, a, in where we lived, about an hour southeast of here. And I said, look, let's just move to Birmingham. I'll get a job in some type of sales. Um, and I think I can do well with that. And I can spend two or three years figuring out what my next chapter is going to be as far as owning my, and running my own company. And so we agreed upon that. So I, I interviewed with several companies here in the Birmingham area, different industries, and got several offers. Um, again, I was 27, 28 years old and decided to go with an insurance-based broker-dealer that had a small presence in Birmingham. At the time, they were a Fortune 500 company. And uh, finance had, had always been intriguing to me. 
Um, I took a lot of classes in college as it relate to it. So I'm like, this would be interesting. So it, it's finance. I get to work, work with numbers. I get to work with investments. But I'm still working with people, you know. Yeah. So I'm like, this is intriguing. I, th- this is something I feel like I can do. So I took that position, and I will, I, you've heard me say this many, many times. I'll take lucky over being good any day <laughs> of the week because that's part of mindset, putting yourself in positions to where you can benefit from the people around you, and then you can empower them as well. So I was very fortunate my first year in the business. I was the rookie of the year company-wide, this little kid from Alexander City, Alabama, working in Birmingham. Everybody's like, everybody's like who is this guy? You know, I'm like, <laughs> It's me. Uh, but six months into that, because I had business experience, they uh, came to me and asked me to take over sales manager of that firm. And I, I, I said no for two or three different times. I didn't want to be a manager for someone else. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted it to be my company if I ever went into a management role. But they eventually talked me into it. It's like, you know, you can still have your practice. This won't take much of your time. Uh, and, you know, we think you would do well. I'm like, and so I reluctantly took the sales manager role. Uh, had some success for my for personal practice, had some, some, some success in the Birmingham market over that short period of time. And six months after that, I got promoted to senior vice president of sales for the Southeastern division of the company. I'm like, what is going on around here? You guys are idiots. I mean, I have no experience. I do not, I don't know what I'm doing, but Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll give it, I'll I'll show up and give it a, give it a shot. Uh, Six months after that, I was promoted to managing director of the Midwestern and Southeastern division of the company. Now at, at that point in time, I was sure they'd lost their mind. Yeah. Uh, for putting me in that role, I, w- I would report to the CEO of the company. And so I worked out of St. Louis uh, predominantly during the next three years. I was 28, 29 years old when I became managing director, the youngest managing director there. And over the next three years, I learned a lot about the industry. And more importantly, I learned what I didn't want to do. Uh, it was a proprietary company. They're, it was a very good company at the time. Uh, and they manufactured some very good product that we could offer to our clients and me being a managing director offered to our financial advisors. I had a hundred and something financial advisors that reported to me, total of about 300 people in, in my organization. So I mean, it was a big job and uh, learned a lot. And like I said earlier, I learned what I didn't want to do. I started, I, there was, a, there was inherent conflict of interest, you know, yeah. because if I, I, as the managing director, made more money if I convinced my advisors to sell them the, the product that the company manufactured. And as I got older, again, I'm still young. I'm in my early thirties at this point in time. It started bothering me. It started bothering me to the point to where I, I honestly couldn't sleep at night. Yeah. And the company made some bad decisions on some, like I said, it was an insurance based company, a great industry to learn our industry in or our great side of our industry to learn our industry in but I knew that's not what I wanted to do going forward and uh, I made the decision I'm like this is uh, I'm starting to, I'm starting to second guess you know that I'm doing the right thing for these advisors number one and definitely for their clients because if if, if they wanted our advice we had a solution it was our proprietary right. product right. right and when they did it I got paid more money yep. this is a problem it became a yep. problem for me so the company made some bad decisions because, of, you know, from a financial standpoint, um, I saw the writing on the wall because of the position I was in. And long story short, I moved back to Birmingham. I never moved away from Birmingham. I commuted back and forth, but came back to Birmingham full time, 
avoided a few lawsuits and started RFG. Um, and that was in um, June of 2003. And we started the company. It was me and another founding partner at the time who's, who's no, no longer an owner of RFG but still with our firm. Uh, he was the top producing advisor for that company in the Birmingham area. So I'm like, it's perfect for me to, uh, you know, co-found co this, uh, this idea that I had. And I was able to continue to grow my practice. So I, I had a fairly sizable practice at the time. And bottom line is we took about three or four other of the top advisors in the Birmingham area. He and I went and built, uh, bought a 8,000 square foot office building. We occupied half of it. We rented out half of it to the person I bought it from. I mean, things were just working out. And uh, basically started the company. We had, there was a total of eight people with admin and everything. And uh, we basically started RFG with the idea of building a little scale and capacity to share expenses and, you know, have capacity to support mine in his practice. Right. That was basically it. And, and we were very transparent as it relates to that. And uh, word got out after a while. We were, we were cooking with steam. Um, if you didn't think we were the smartest two people in the room, just ask us, man. We would have told you. I mean, two 33-year-old kids, if you, if you really want to be honest, you know, we're going around like, man, we figured it all out. And, and we continued to grow uh, just by word of mouth. I had advisors, and, and most of the business that we did at that point in time was in the Birmingham area. And we, I would have advisors reach out to me uh, from other independent firms, uh, wirehouses, whatever, and say, hey, I'd love to come talk to you about joining your platform. Yeah. What, what platform? platform? I mean, you know, this is just a few guys and a few ladies, you know, just getting up and putting their pants on every day and going to work and taking care of their clients. And, you know, the response I would get would be, you know, you've got a great reputation in town. You built a good reputation in town. Y'all do what you say you're going to do. And we, we would love to join up with you all. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is neat, I guess. You know, build some more scale, help some other people and things such as that. So that continued on for the next few years. And then 2007, we got to the point to where we were with an independent broker dealer at that time. And we were predominantly brokerage business back then. A lot of people don't realize that, that, that we, we were not in a fiduciary model at that time, even though that's where I knew we needed to go. Yeah. And so in 2007, I went to my chief compliance officer at the time. I said, look, it's time for us to start looking at setting up our own RIA. So I charged him. I gave him a year, plenty of time, yeah. do all the due diligence, figure this out, and then report back to me. He did. And about the time he put it on my desk, it was uh, March of 2008. <laughs> so all of us that are at least 35 or 40 years old can look back and know what March of 2008 looked like from a financial perspective. And uh, so I went to my team at the time, although very small, and said, look, you know, this is something we are going to do, start our own RIA, become a full uh, fiduciary model, but it's, things are going on. You know, things we got the financial crisis, a lot of things going on, a lot of uncertainty. I don't know how long this is going to last, and I certainly don't know how bad it's going to get, but it's going to last a while, and it's going to get pretty doggone bad. What we need to do is go back to our clients, hold their hands, make sure they're taken care of, make sure we're doing the right thing for them. And this is going on the back burner because this is what we've got to focus on. So we all know how that ended. We were able, we were very fortunate. We were very blessed. Not only did we survive that, still being a very, fairly small firm 
at the time, but we thrived through it. We picked up new assets, new clients, and just continued to forge ahead and build good relationships. And then in 2011, we dusted the, uh, the, 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 book, the plan off of starting our own RIA and uh, did that. And we, we, we joined the largest independent broker-dealer uh, in the country, which looking back, that was the right decision because they at least spoke hybrid. Hybrid mean we were our own RIA, registered investment advisory firm, but we still had a lot of brokers business and we needed a broker dealer. And I did not want to be a broker dealer. I want to get as far away from that as I could. So it, it was a, it was a natural next step. So we formed our RIA in 2011 and uh, basically just continued to, to, to grow to the point to where we were about $450 million under management. Everything was going according to plan. Everything was just taking longer than I wanted it to because yeah. 2008 hit, you know, then this happened. Oh, we got to transition our book of business. We got to do this. And then I found out after about two years being, being part of that independent broker dealer that uh, that was not the partner going forward. Not anything that they necessarily did wrong. It's just, it was two mindset, two different ways of looking at things and looking at the industry. Uh, but I didn't know what that next step was going to look like quite yet. Yeah. But at the same time, I was to a point I felt I could double the size of the business over a 12-month period of time. So to your point, I guess I'm getting into the next chapter yeah. here. Um, the growth, the crusade. growth crusade, man. I was like, I had, I had two other partners at the time. And, uh, you know, I was the CEO all the way down to the bottle washer. Uh, you know, it was one of those. It was a small, growing business. And um, I went on a crusade to double the size of our, our business over a 12-month period of time. And I wasn't able to do that, but I was able to triple the size of the firm over an 18-month period of time, uh, predominantly due to two succession-driven acquisitions that I made. Man, it was exciting. It was like, oh, man, this is great. But, now, but at the same time, we did these deals right within months of each other. And so, you, as you can imagine, being going from 450 to 1.2 billion at that time, I mean, you can do the math, man. I mean, you, there, there's cash flow, you know, and you can adjust cash flow to where we we had, we had built a great lifestyle company for me and the other two partners. But what I saw after about three months of eating those two elephants simultaneously, that we were we were, we were capped out. There, we were not going to be able to grow anymore unless I made some significant changes to our entire business model. We'd outgrown our broker dealer relationship. Uh, we felt we were independent, but we really weren't because of that relationship, and that became very evident during that period of time. Um, we had outgrown the technology. We had outgrown our custodial relationship. I'd outgrown half of my management team. I mean, I had a very good management team for a $500 million up to even a billion dollars. Uh, RIA, but to go from 450 to a 1.2 billion in 18 months with subpar technology. So, I mean, I was walking up and down the hall, Shannon. This is before we even met, and people's heads were exploding right in front of my eyes. I'm like, oh my god! Now we got to clean the wall off because someone's brains have just went all over the wall. I mean, it was like people were scared to death. They let fear get you know get into their their spirit and their soul to the point they didn't know what to do next, and we didn't have the tools and the resources that we needed to support a billion dollar firm. So anyway. Two or three months into eating that elephant, you know, I was kind of proud of myself, you yeah, know. As you should be. And I mean, like, that's a you huge know, golly, I pulled it off, you know. So I joke, but this this is actually true, this statement that, uh, that I'm about to make. So I go into my office. That It was the day, man. 
I go in there, I shut my door to do the proverbial pat on my back. Man, you tripled the size of the firm <laughs> in 18 months. And instead, I found myself in the corner of my office, in the fetal position, crying like a baby, going, <laughs> oh, my God, what have you done? You know, people's heads are exploding. People don't know what to do. I've outgrown my management team, some of my management team. I've outgrown everything. What's next? Yeah. And what was next was one of two things. Keep doing what I'm doing. I've got a good lifestyle company, and this isn't a bad gig. Yep. You know, I can provide for my family a good way. I can send my kids to school anywhere they want to go. I can do some not great things that I never, the way I was raised, thought I would ever be able to do. But that's kind of not the way I'm built. The other side was I could do this, where we are now. But I'm like, that's going to be hard. Yeah. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be a lot of change. I'm going to have to make a lot of changes in my personnel. I'd come to adore a lot of these people. So I knew that was going to make some – that was going to be very hard on me. So as I went through that, you know, went back to eating that elephant, I get an email and a call one day from um, – one of our mutual friends, I didn't know at the time, uh, I, I didn't know you at the time, uh, uh, he wouldn't mind me saying his name on this podcast, but uh, Doug Cotharp. And uh, Doug is the uh, uh, CFO of Encompass Health, which is a large company based out of Birmingham, Alabama. He's on the board of several large uh, uh, public companies and, believe it or not, is one of my best friends. You know, you put the two of us in a room, you're like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, I see how you came up and how you came up, and then you listen to us talk for 15 minutes, then you're like, I get it. I get it yeah. why you are close friends. As a matter of <laughs> fact, I'm going to be with him today, so it's going to be a lot of fun. But Doug reached out to me and said, look, you know, I know you had significant growth over the last, you know, couple of years. I don't know where you stand from an executive management team. But I met uh, the, the, my, my across-the-street neighbor, unbeknownst to me, she's been living here for a couple of years, unbeknownst to me, has a 20-plus-year career in institutional finance. And her family, her and her family moved here a couple of years ago, and, you know, she's been doing this luxury children's clothing line thing. I thought she just sold my wife expensive children's clothes. But unbeknownst to me, she has this unbelievable finance career and is looking to get back in the game and, you know, uh, doesn't know a lot of people. And uh, she brought her resume over to me, and I thought about you, and uh, would you spend 45 minutes with her? If it goes somewhere, great. If not, if you feel comfortable, extend your Rolodex to uh, her to help her meet some some people. Well, Doug's one of those, and it happened to be you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here we are. Here we are. So we know how that ended, right. you know. <laughs> we know how that ended, but it's a cool story. So Doug's one of those type of people if he asks you to do something, you pretty much do it, you know, and, and he's a great, great guy and has done so much for, for me oh personally and our entire firm. Yeah. And so, you know, he shared, shared with me your contact information. We corresponded, we set something up and, you know, we scheduled that meeting for 45 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cause I'm like, I looked at your resume and I'm like, you know, first of all, she can do my job, you know, uh -huh. so I don't know how I feel about that. She's qualified to do my job. Uh, I just went through this big growth spurt. I don't know what's next. I don't know what direction I want to take the company. And uh, so we scheduled the meeting for 45 minutes and, uh, you know, just to get to know each other. Because I wasn't, I didn't wake up that morning thinking I was going to hire the next president of my company, my next partner. 
And you didn't get up thinking you want to take a job at a high net worth retail shop, you know. <laughs> and so we had 45 minutes planned, if you remember, because you actually had an interview after me that you were actually interested <laughs> in taking the job. I was just a filler meeting. Yeah, <laughs> my best filler meeting. <laughs> that filler meeting. So as you remember, we went back to my office, we sat down, we started talking, and immediately what I saw in you, I'm like, this is someone, I had plan A, plan B. All right, plan A was just keep trucking along. like Lifestyle a, company. A lifestyle company, and nothing's wrong with that. Plan B was just disrupt every freaking thing <laughs> in the, my business, in my life, in, in, you know, in the industry, and build something bigger than ourselves. And what I saw in you is this is the person that can help me get there. And in 15 minutes, if you recall, I'm like, hey, I'm willing to cancel the rest of my day. Let's get to know each other. Let's just talk about the industry. Let's talk about the disruption. And we both, uh, you called your next meeting. I buzzed my assistant, and we counseled the rest of our day. Two and a half hours later, we finished up my office with a legal pad, about 10 pages just scribbled all over, where we just outlined uh, what uh, what RFG 2.0 would look like. And now uh, here, here we, we are. are. Here we are. It's such a great story. And every time you tell it, I swear it's like I'm transported. I can remember that moment so vividly. And it, it seems like it was yesterday. It re- I mean, it does. It was five, and, know, five and a half years, years ago. ago. Almost six years yeah. ago when we Since met. We it met. was in May, yeah. I believe. Yeah. 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 And, you know, what was so exciting about that conversation was it, it, we really were looking forward to what's happening in the industry, to what mm-hmm. we're experiencing now, this like tremendous convergence of disruptive factors. So of, you know, the generational wealth transfer, the amount of money that's pouring into fintech, the changing expectations of the clients and what they really want out of a relationship with their financial advisor, fee compression, fee compression for portfolio management, like all of these factors. The commoditization of that, yeah. Yeah, of the, yeah. you know, of the industry. And, and, and as we sat there and we, we sketched out what is, what is RFG 2.0? What is the RIA of the future? How do you serve independent financial advisors and, and their clients? And I will, you know, forever be so grateful to you for that meeting because my prior experience in, in San Francisco and on the institutional side and in hedge fund management as an investment banker, as a, you know, entrepreneur starting this, this luxury children's clothing company was I was really seeking what I called the intangible, right? This this intersection of opportunity and really smart, driven people intersect. And you get to build something bigger than yourself. Yep. So I didn't have attachment to what industry or what title or what, you know, what was I going to be doing? All I cared about was that like lightning in a bottle. I was like, I want, I want that again because I had seen it. I'd been on the ground floor of two hedge funds of an investment bank, of a startup company. And there is nothing more energizing, more motivating, more inspiring than to build something. Yeah. And you can't have more fun. You cannot have more fun. So we're sitting there in your office. And as I look back on that, and, and as we think about it in the context of this conversation, you were the really the prototypical financial advisor, successful financial advisor. You know, you're the CEO, you're the founder, in your words, like the chief bottle washer. You're wearing every one of those hats, taking them on and off all day long, depending on what is the situation. And I really credit you for recognizing that to build the next 
chapter of RFG to build RFG 2.0, you had to make some really tough decisions. There are not many advisors who have kind of the guts and the foresight to be able to say like, I need to bring in professional management. I need to disrupt myself and my company. So I wanted to spend some time because the majority of financial advisors are sub a billion dollars. So I want to spend some time kind of looking backwards and what you went through, what that means to be a founding advisor, to be, you know, the 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 person in charge of because it, it is still the norm in yeah, our industry. Is. This is still the the predominant model. So what it's like to run a firm at you know, build it up to 500 million from 500 million to a billion, the challenges, the opportunities. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, one of our, I hate to use the term tagline, but one of the things that we talk a lot about here at RFG advisory, when we're bringing on new independent financial advisors to our platform is, Hey, what we're going to do is help you be the CEO of your practice, not the COO. And, and that's so true. What I found is I was not, I thought I was the CEO of my practice. I was not. I was the COO of my practice. There was not a CEO. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, I was so entrenched in the weeds and the details and had to be. There was, there was no choice at that point in time. And, you know, I knew that we had to build something different to be able to grow and it was going to be very, very difficult. But as it relates to, and I didn't know if I wanted to do it, right? Right. You know, this isn't too bad what I have, but man, it could be so much better. Yeah. And uh, hence, you know, RFG 2.0. But, you know, I, I saw very quickly that I was I was really not the CEO. And one of the things that if, if I have any, if I've had any success or if I've made any good decisions along the way from the business perspective, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm being cheeky here because I'm not, but I want to be the least smart person in the room, right? And that's come, that may come off cheeky. I mean, if those of you that know me, that's not too hard maybe sometimes, <laughs> and I'll give you that. Uh, but seriously, if, I'm, if, if, I'm, if I've got the executive team, if I've got you and Rick and our senior team, and I want to be the least smart person in the room because why are you there right. if I'm the smartest person in the room? I don't need you. So I think what a lot of CEOs, especially our industry, face is the fear, and we talk about fear a lot here, of not being that smartest person in the room. And it takes a special per I'm not calling myself special, but it takes a special quality in someone to give up that 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 control. Control. Yeah, that yeah. control. We were talking about it yesterday. We were in Kansas visiting one of our new advisory firms that just uh, joined our platform and you were telling the story uh, because this the, the 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 lead advisor there, the gentleman who owns the firm is like, "Hey, this is another chapter, you know. I'm I'm you know, but I don't know what it's going to look like, you know, because he's got two younger junior uh, partners there." And, you know, you look back, it's like Bobby went through the same thing. You know, when we formulated our partnership and I started and I promoted you six months after you joined to president and you became a partner of the firm. You know, what was going on in the background of all that is I bought out two new partners, two other partners, right? right? And you on eventually we brought Rick Waddell on as our chief investment officer. So there were so many things going on at one time. I couldn't do it all. And I struggled a little bit giving up that control yeah. to you in managing the day-to-day of the firm. 
And it was difficult. But I'm like, if I'm going to be the CEO, this is what I've got to do. And too many advisors or CEOs of advisory firms will not allow themselves. And sometimes I hate to call you, call, I hate to call you out, but sometimes I'll allow you, you're, you, you, because of your ego, you won't allow it. And I mean, at the time that, that that you and I met, you know, we were at 1.2, 1.3 billion. Here we sit at 2.6 billion. So we've over doubled our size and we rebuilt the company at right. the same time. Right. You can't do that as a CEO, COO, president, bottle washer. Right. <laughs> you just can't. I mean, yeah. come on. So yeah. it's very important for CEOs to give up control to smart people around them and not be intimidated by the fact that, hey, they may know more than you do. I mean, I look at you now, and I'm like, there's no way I can run the day-to-day of the company as good as you. I just can't. I know it. I don't try to anymore. Right. I mean, you come to me. I mean, we have daily partner calls, yeah. and we, we, we interact together. We are all three involved in the company. I mean, Very. full steam ahead. And we all have our roles and stuff like that. And, you know, as, as, as the president, you let me know what's going on. You, you come to me with, you know, for advice from time to time because my years of experience in this part of the industry. And we communicate, and our dialogue is so good. That's why our partnership is so great, and along with our other partner, Rick. But, uh, but you, you've got to be able to – you've got to give up some control in order to someone that you trust in order to take it to the next level. Again, we doubled the size again and tore down the old company – and rebuilt what is now all at the same time. Are you an advisor looking to make the move to independence? RFG Advisory is an innovator in the wealth management industry with a winning culture and a fully integrated tech platform designed to help advisors take their practice to the next level. Let us get to know you at rfgadvisory.com. All right. I mean, you've said it so well, and it really is applicable whether you're at two and a half billion or you're at 250 million, that you can't wear all these hats. You you just simply cannot. And, you know, there's a, you know, one of the other crises kind of facing our industry and part of this disruptive change is the majority of the advisors who are running firms are north of 60. You know, the average age mm, of a financial 61, advisor. 62, depending on what right. statistics you look at. And we're at, you know, maybe on a good day, 15 to 17% have succession plans. I think mm. that is like exhibit A on this crisis of building enterprises that are sustainable and and I think as the industry becomes more complex from a regulatory perspective, from a technology perspective, from a servicing and marketing perspective, this like crisis of taking on and off your hat of really being the COO when you need to be the CEO is just getting exacerbated. Like, mm-hmm. what do advisors do about it? Mm-hmm. What do they do if they're if they're sitting there like, all right, Bobby, yeah, you went through this and you're, you know, kick ass and we're able to make these hard choices and bring in these like A players. Now you've, you know, you've gone from that firm that you started in 2003 to that marker of 450 million, 2.6 billion on your way to 10. But that's not me. I'm I'm 100 million. I'm 250 million. How how, how is this applicable to a, an advisor who's who's running a practice of that size? 
Yeah, I mean, the, first of all, you got to be willing to dis, not only disrupt things around you and 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 challenge the status quo, but you got to be willing to disrupt yourself a little bit too. And uh, you know, you hear me say this all the time. Probably to the point you get tired of hearing me say it. Get comfortable being uncomfortable, and you'll never be uncomfortable. Amen. And that <laughs> is so true. Uh, that takes fear out of the equation. You know, fear only will slow you down. Fear fear will only make you hesitate. And so many advisors at the 60-something, you know, age has no have no succession plan. They're, they're, they're not willing to give up control. And a lot of these advisors, guess what they do? They work a few more years. They're making a dis- decent living. And one day they just get up and say, you know, today's the day. I'm turning the lights off. You know, and they they walk away from a significant amount of enterprise value, and but but the reason they do that is because well, let me back up. They are they could be walking away from a significant right. amount of enterprise value if they haven't taken the steps or put the steps in place to realize that enterprise value is off or not. Yeah, and so many, and and this is what, this is what gets me. I mean, I've been in the industry for a long time, twenty two years, but. It's like the cardiologist. Some cardiologists. Yep. All right. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not picking on cardiologists. I've got some cardiologist friends out there, so I'm not picking on you. Uh, but here, here's a good example. You know, cardiologists. You know, they're going to tell you not to smoke. They're going to tell you back off on your drinking. You know, they're going to tell you this Don't and eat that. Meat. Don't eat red meat <laughs> and things such as that. And then they go home, smoke a pack of cigarettes, and drink a <laughs> bottle of bourbon, and eat a big old steak. You know, so sometimes we don't <laughs> practice what we preach, and that's the same thing. With and I'm not picking on cardiologists, by the way. Just as an example, uh, it's the same holds true with financial advisors. We don't always practice what we preach. Um, you know, we advise our clients on what they need to do to accomplish their financial goals and objectives and dreams. And we do that with our business owner clients and things such as that. And by the most part, we do a good job. But, you know, especially on the independent side, or if you're in your warehouse, you're never going to realize enterprise value. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just going to call I'm just going to call it what it is. Uh, but you don't put the appropriate steps in place to be able to realize that enterprise value. We're very fortunate here, as you know, at RFG. Our average advisor age is like 44, yeah. which is unheard of. 60-some-odd advisors, I mean, 44 is the average. That is so young. And so what, we, uh, what we're able to do in helping our advisors, you know, once they join our platform, is help them put the appropriate, you know, uh, steps in place to where they will be able to realize significant yeah. enterprise value. They will have a succession plan. You know, we, we provide an immediate succession plan for them when they come on until we figure out what it's going to be going forward. So I share all that to go back to your point. What does it look like at 150, you know, 250, 500? First of all, if you are under $500 million in assets, this is not a commercial for RFG. Take it for what it is. I mean, we're, we're in business to bring advisors on, but partner up with somebody. It just absolutely makes no sense for you to be your own RIA. It's, I mean, it's doable, yeah. you know, and you can, make a, you can make a very good living doing it, but it's going to get harder, 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 and harder. We'll comply. Fee compression is real. Now, I do not participate in fee compression. It is real around us, but whoever, I'm not going to get in that battle. I'm not going to, whoever wins the, uh, whoever wins that battle to the lowest of fee is going to lose the war. What we do for our clients is of value, and people are willing to pay for that value. 
So I don't get it. Well, oh, I got to lower my fees. Well, you're just saying you're not doing a good job. You know, that's what that's What's what your value? That, what is your value? What are you bringing to, to the table? Uh, but fee compression is real, and you've got to be able to address that. Compliance and regulatory issues. Ooh. I have 22 years, you know, and I've been a principal, meaning in, in part of the compliance aspect of our business for 20 of those years. There's not been a year that it hasn't gotten harder. It gets different. You know, but it, it harder and more expensive, much more expensive. I mean, we're a private company, so I wouldn't disclose it anyway. But you would turn over, you roll over if you know how much we spend at two point six billion dollars on our compliance team and our return, retaining uh, retainers for the attorneys, our SEC counsel, everything else, to, just to yep. make sure we're compliant and to make sure our clients and our advisors are protected. And it, it's not going to get any. It's not going to get any easier. Um, technology. Technology. <laughs> took the word out of my Talk mouth. Talk about rollover in your grave. Talk about rollover in your grave, man. <laughs> you know, six years ago, I, 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 I'm like, you know, this, this, even I, and I'm not the most tech-savvy person. I'll be the first to admit. You know, we, we tell people RFG is a service company first, a technology company second, and an RIA third. And the order of those is very important. But if you have told me even six years ago, with my knowledge on technology, that te- technology can be the second thing as we list out. I'm like, you're crazy. Me as the CEO? <laughs> you know, hence I had to bring people a lot smarter than me in here to uh, to pull this off. But I had a vision. I knew what I wanted our technology to do. I didn't know how to do it. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to uh, be comfortable and be able to be willing to disrupt yourself to make things happen. So not only can you survive, but thrive going forward in a very disrupted industry. Uh, so you're up to 500 million and you were saying, you know, it's just almost impossible. To it, be it's it, it's not impossible. It is very difficult very and it's going to get more difficult. And then talk about like, you know, you're almost, it's equally as challenging in a different way, 500 million to a billion. Yeah. It really is. I mean, and again, it depends on if you're if you're if you've got a niche market to where you can build organically from 500 to a billion, and you're not having and you're 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 bringing in those new assets and those new clients, you can still be profitable along the way from 500 to a billion dollars. Uh, but it's very tough. But most people to. A billion dollars under management looks totally different than 500 million under management. If, if you're giving your clients what they deserve and if you're giving your financial advisors what they need and what they deserve, and the amount of investment from 500 to a billion pretty much takes all your profit away if you're doing it right. And that may sound counterintuitive, what I just said. You know, if you're doing it right, you mean you're just breaking even? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because you've got to invest so heavily and extensively to get it the way it needs to be. And then I would argue that a billion to two billion is the same thing. You know, we're at two point six billion. You know, we're sitting around looking like, like, man, I'm glad we did it. I don't want to do it again, though. <laughs> I'm glad we were past that chapter. And yeah. now we, we we're at a point now to where, hey, we're you know we we we've got scale, we've got capacity, yeah. and we've got that time and investment uh, behind. Now we continue to invest. We continue to in our people, our technology. It's never ending, nor should it be. Right. But the 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 uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for the uh, Rubicon uh-huh. you know aspect of getting through there we've got that part behind us yeah and that's a uh, I'm glad we're not doing that oh you were there in the <laughs> trench with me so uh, I know we're going to dedicate a whole podcast to the building of 2.0 and 
Get comfortable being uncomfortable and what that really means. How often during, how many times during the day did we see that? Yeah. And if it was easy, everybody would. Everyone would do it. We're going to dedicate, we're going to pull Rick in. We're going to talk about all that. But I want to switch gears um, here and, and get a little personal. So, you know, most people only know you as a very successful founder, CEO, as an entrepreneur, as really a visionary businessman, as a very dedicated father, and and more recently as a you know total badass who spent the last four years training with a Navy SEAL Team Six veteran warrior Dom Rosso as a result of our groundbreaking podcast series Become a Warrior. And most people don't know but Bobby White was all about before you were a successful business person and and how you grew up and and how far you've come. And I think it's, you know, it's a really powerful story and I would love for you to share it. Whew. That I don't know if we have enough time to 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 share all of that. Uh yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, people that don't you know the story because uh not only you're my partner, but I consider you my sister too. So uh you know pretty much everything there is to know about me. But the, uh, yeah, I guess a lot of people that don't know me, know my background, they look at me as like, well, you know, you're a wealthy business owner and successful and, you know, I'll take that, you know, but they don't, they assume that I grew up with maybe some wealth or, you know, upper middle class or, you know, didn't do without, which I, I fully disclosure, I, I, I never went without food, uh, clothing, shelter, anything like that. But I don't think many people know how I really grew up. Uh, it was, uh, it, 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 it was a hard, it was a hard childhood. Like, like I said, the, uh, not because of abuse or anything like that, but, uh, we were very poor. Uh, I never lived in anything. I think when, before I was five years old, I think we had a couple of rental houses we lived in that were actually houses that were had a foundation. Uh, after, after that, I never lived in anything that didn't have wheels on it until I was a senior in college. So I've I lived in trailer parks my entire life. And, and there was nothing wrong with that because uh, that's all my mother could afford. So I come from a family um, um, that I've got uh, my mother and father divorced when I was a year and a half old. Uh, my father had, he contracted, either when he was 11 or 12 years old, he, he contracted a, a disease called rheumatic fever. Most people have heard of it. It's not as prevalent in this day and age as it was back when he, he was a child. And what rheumatic fever would do for a lot of people who get it as a child, it would cause heart disease. And so my father passed away at 40 years old uh, due to a heart attack. And so he had struggled, uh, was on disability most of his life. And like I said, he and my mother uh, divorced when I was a year and a half old. So I, I have two, two very vague memories of my father. My mother, my, 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 my siblings, I had, I had two sisters, uh, and I have a brother, and I and I have a, I had an older sister who uh, actually was murdered uh, almost a year ago, and so we had a lot of tragedy in our life and things such as that. But I, I have living my my older brother and my youngest sister. My youngest sister is ten and a half years older than me, so they were all pretty much grown, you know, and out of the house. My youngest sister, we spent some time under the same roof as our mother, uh, and my mother was a textile worker. You know, I mean, I come from a family of textile workers and putwooders, you know, and uh, every and there's nothing wrong with those industries at all. 
you know, and they're, they're, they're very, very noble. You know, everybody assumed growing up I was either going to work in a textile mill, uh, which I did for a while as a manager, but I did for a little while out of college. Uh, and I worked in there as a worker through high school and things such as that or, 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 or a putwooder. And there would have been nothing in the world wrong with that. And no one would have looked at me as if I had failed because that's what would be expected. So I grew up, I grew up, it was me and my mother. We, we were fairly close to my siblings and stuff like that. They came around all the time. But, uh, you know, I lived on the wrong side of the tracks, you know, as it relates to my peer group and stuff like that. And so as a child going to school, like from elementary school, I look back, you know, there's there so many decisions I made, even as a child. Up until in my 20s and 30s, and it's still now, that if I'd have made little bitty decisions, little, little bitty levers, that if I'd have made a different decision, my life most likely would have turned out totally different. totally different than what it has. And, you know, there was a period in my life I was about, uh, you know, I, I had a happy childhood, but it was, you know, we lived in a trailer park and, you know, we, we did fun things that kids don't do right now. We got outside and rode around in the dirt and, <laughs> you know fault. And, you know, uh, <laughs> we didn't like something the way it was going. We duked it out and then we'd be best friends again. You know, it was a different way of bringing up than probably what a lot of people would imagine uh, as far as the way my life looks like now. When I was 13 or 14, I made, I made a decision at that point in time that you remember, grow, you remember in school, you remember that kid, he or she, that was, uh, you know, on the the other side of the tracks, you know, uh, maybe a little edgy here and there, maybe gets in a little trouble sometimes. Not nothing terrible, but gets in some trouble here and there. But the popular kids still liked him or her because he he or she was funny. Yep. That was me. Yep. You know, that was me. And uh, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I started hanging around with a different group. Not that the people I hung out with before were bad people, but I started hanging out with a different group of, of kids, teenagers at that time. And, you know, all they talked about is going to college and going doing this. And, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do this. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going to be a buttwitter. You know, I don't, I don't know any different. But the, uh, you know, I got to know those people, listen to them, got to meet some of their parents and, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, God rest my mother's soul. She passed away about two years ago. And she had her own trials and tribulations as she grew up and, you know, struggled and stuff like that, as a lot of people did. That was her age. And I remember going to her. When I was 14, I said, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go to college. And I'd love to say that she said this to inspire and motivate me, but I don't think that was probably it. She just didn't know any better. But she looked at me and she said, you're not going to college. Number one, you're not smart enough, and you can't afford it. And I'm like, huh. And that was the first time I realized that I had it in me, that if you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> It's going to get done. <laughs> From that moment on, I'm like, uh. Yeah. And I did it back then. Like, I'll show you. Right. Okay. I'll show you. And my mother was not a bad person. She 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 right. fed me. She clothed me. She, she, she made sure I was taken care of. Even though we weren't together a lot, I had to pretty much raise myself. Because, I mean, she had to, the most she ever made was $16,500. Right. That's the most. Yeah. And it was just me and her and, and yeah. this trailer. And uh, so, I mean, I had to get myself off to school. I had to get, you know, come home. She, she was working, and, uh, and, and that was fine. But I remember that day as if it were a month ago, and I'm like, she just told me I couldn't do something that I'm very passionate about that I want to do to help me 
build a better life for me and my future wife, my children, and whatever it may be. And so, you know, my grades were fine in school, but, you know, I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar by any means. I mean, I was a good, solid B student, so no scholarships were in my uh, in my uh, in my future, but uh, I moved out of the house from my mother when I was 17. I was a senior in high school when I moved out on my own, and I uh, went to work in a foundry in the little town uh, that I'm from. I mean, I slung a, I slung a sledgehammer uh, <laughs> for about 10 hours a night, and then I would go back to my trailer, you know, that I had a roommate with, and uh, I, I would wash off because I would be black from head to toe with all the soot and everything else, and I'd get a shower, and I'd go to the junior college that I went to school, that, that I enrolled in. That's another thing. I didn't go. To, I graduated from Auburn University, but I went to a junior college for two years because I couldn't afford it. Right. You know, and I had to work. So I was I was working, slinging sledgehammers, doing jobs here and doing jobs there. Kind of went through a, a, went down a few wrong paths during that period of time and uh, did some things I really shouldn't have done. Um, and again, those small little decisions you make along the way, if I went just a little bit further this way, yeah. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be, be sitting You here. wouldn't be worried. <laughs> you would not care what my background was. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, so I was, I worked my way through junior college, got accepted to Auburn, went to Auburn. And that's, I think that's, that was a good turning point to me, for me is when I went to, when I went to school there and got to meet a lot of new people, started building my confidence. You know, it was like, I, I was able to meet people and talk to them. People were interested in talking to me. I'm like, why are you interested in talking to me? Yeah. I'm like, okay. And so that was a, that was a big time in my, uh, exciting time in my life. And uh, right after I graduated from Auburn, I went back to my hometown, Alexander City, and went to work for uh, Russell Corporations, because that's what you did if you were from Alexander yep. City, and, uh, which is a textile mill company. But I was, uh, came on as a supervisor, built my way up to a, uh, a department head. And uh, right after college, I started dating this young lady there in Alexander City that was a few years younger than me. And uh, her, her parents owned a uh, photography studio. And I knew nothing about photography or anything like that. And uh, th- their daughter, her name was Leanne, was just an ama- amazing lady. And uh, tragically, she was killed in a car wreck. Uh, terrible time, terrible time. And kind of went down the wrong path again after that happened. But I, I was still working at Russell, made a few bad decisions personally for me, uh, but got past that. And then her parents came to me. They wanted uh, uh, her father was uh, going to run for mayor. Mm-hmm. which I helped him run for mayor, which was awesome. He that was Don McClellan, and uh, he passed away a year and a half ago, and uh, he was like a mentor to me. And uh, so they came to me and said they, they had taught me how to take pictures. So when I was still in college, just finishing up college, and when me and Leanne were dating, uh, they're like, hey, you can do weddings in Auburn. We can show you how to take pictures. And you can quit your part-time job in Auburn, just do that on the weekend and make more money. I'm like, I'm up for it. Yeah. Teach me. I'll do it. And so I, I, I laugh at with them. I, I can't believe people are paying for me to take pictures of the wedding because I <laughs> suck at this. You know, but at least I guess it was good enough. You know, I look back, I'm like, wow. And I'm because I cared about it. I wanted to, I, I, I had I, I, my picture turned a little bit blurry. I'm like, no, that's a filter I used. I wasn't blurry. I'm like, good night, man. What am I doing here? But anyway, after Leanne had 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 uh, passed away, they, they were they were wanting to make some changes. They came to me and said, "Why don't you buy our business?" With what? I mean, I was twenty three, maybe almost twenty four years old, 
and I uh, had a negative $50,000 net worth. <laughs> right. I mean, I had college debt. I mean, you know, student loans and all this other stuff. And uh, they're like, you know, let, let, let's, let's go to the bank. Let's see what happened. What happen. And I still say to this day that the best sales presentation <laughs> I've given in my entire life is to be that 23, 24-year-old uh, guy born in a trailer park talking to that bank president loaning me $250,000 to buy that business. <laughs> I mean, till this day, I'm like, wow, man, you, you can't get away with that this, this day and age. So anyway, I started run, start running the business, made some good business decisions. I sold it after about four years, and then that, that kind of tells pre, you know, the, the first uh, first thing we started talking about here. And, uh, you know, that that taught me a lot, the way I was brought up. And, I mean, I had success in, at, at, in, in the company I was with pre-RFG and now RFG. And what that – you know, the, the, the tragedies that I've had in my life and the uh, struggle that I've had in my life, I don't want it. I wouldn't take anything for it because it made me into who I am today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Such a, um, it's such a hugely important story because RFG 2.0 when we initially started on this journey of, of building the second chapter of the company, it was about creating this best-in-class, state-of-the-art platform for advisors, delivering everything that financial independent financial advisors need to serve their clients and to, and to build enterprise value and grow their practice. And as we've, as we've checked all the boxes on what I'd call like the foundational table stakes, as we've like you know, really have built a sustainable, scalable platform that is 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 really going to, I think, change the future of our industry. We've also, and, and you've really led us on this journey, we've been going through as a culture and as a team, a tremendous time of personal growth. And I've had, you know, I'm the beneficiary of this as your business partner. I've had a, a front row seat and and played a small part in this as well. But you really have led us on, on this path and the RA of the future as, as we are, are talking about it today is so much more than just a platform. It's so much more than state of the art marketing and tech and compliance and access to capital and culture. Even it really has become about how you're going to live your life. How are you? What's your mindset? Who are you? And, and I think that to have that, that perspective of your story and how you grew up and how it's influenced your leadership style is, is really transformative for the RFG, for our advisors, and, and certainly for what we look like in the future. So knit that together for us. So you had this, you know, this, this, this struggle growing up. You overcame it. First person in your family to go to college know, all that you, you have accomplished and we're on this journey, as you say, to get 1% better every day. So just knit that together for us, how your upbringing and the, the first chapter of RFG, the willingness mm-hmm. to tear the entire house down and do something so disruptive and, and to, to be so committed 
to being on this personal journey and looking towards the future of, of being bold and, and becoming 1% better every day? What does that even mean? You know, getting, I say this quite often, you know, strive to get 1% better every single day. And you asked me the question in the podcast we did like a week or so ago. It was like, is it that easy? And I'm like, hell no, it's not that easy. It is that simple. Um, you know, if you, if, you can, if you can train your mindset, and I talk a lot about mindset, and I talk about, you know, becoming a better version of yourself, and I talk about getting 1% better every day. And a lot of that comes from my life experiences, and then it just took a new leap when I started training. You mentioned my training with Dom. Rosso, who's been an instrumental uh, uh, person in my life. And, uh, you know, he's a SEAL Team 6, you know, retired SEAL, SEAL Team 6, and, you know, is a founder and CEO of Dynamics Alliance, which is an elite training, um, you know, company. They, they do all kinds of different things, very interesting. And uh, that has really taken it to a next level and living that lifestyle of, uh, you know, of that warrior. And it's been, it's been fun for me, but it's been transformational I think for me both personally as a father as a leader and everything else and you know a lot of those sayings that people hear me say and I get some criticism about this every now and then is from other operators SEAL guys and stuff like that you just you're just talking the same stuff that we talk about I'm like yeah I I never said I was a SEAL I never said I was in the military because I wasn't but I do believe in that lifestyle and I've learned a lot from it because it's so transferable in every aspect of someone's life you know, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. But why do you think the SEALs are saying that? Because every day of their lives is uncomfortable. You better get comfortable with it or fear is going to take over. And if fear takes over, you're going to hesitate, and all it's going to do is slow you down. Well, in the, in, in the environments that those guys are in, you can't do that. Right. It's the same thing in business. Right. If you take that principle and you put it in business, okay, this is, it's like going from RFG 1.0 to RFG 2.0. You know, what did people tell us? Our peers. <laughs> Everybody. We're like, we're going to basically, Rick, our other partner, uses the analogy. Imagine this. We're on a jetliner, and we're, go, we're about 40,000 feet above, and Shannon and Bobby come to me and said, hey, we're about to cha- go out on the wing and change out both engines in mid-flight. Would you like to join? <laughs> He's like, sounds like a lot of fun. Sign me up. You know, and that's the kind of the mindset that we had to have when we were going through all that. So, you know, getting uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, and, you know, some of the things that these operators that I've gotten to know over the years and trained with and, you know, and bled with. And, blood. I mean, I'm not in combat or anything, but there still might be some blood here and there with the way we train. And uh, it's all transferable to everything we do. We have to have uncomfortable conversations with our children. You know, you know, I, I've been in a position with our partnership. With our partnership, and it's like, yeah. but, you know, let's crush the fear and let's get on with it because we don't want that to set us back. And as that gets to, you know, becoming a better version of self, yourself, and getting one percent better, you've heard me say this so many times. And I think I said it earlier in this podcast because uh, we used to say it a lot. We still say it: is if it were easy, everybody would do it. And we can be complacent. Okay, it's easy. We can make excuses. I had every excuse growing up not to, I, I mean, I, would, I had my fun in college. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a saint by any means. And I had fun and stuff like that. I did what you would imagine uh, other uh, college kids are doing and stuff like that. But I had to study, too. You know, I had to work hard. I had to go to my job. So I couldn't stay at 2 o'clock in the morning like a lot of my buddies were because I had to get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to work. 
the next morning. I had to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning to go to, to go to work so I could pay for my tuition and pay for my rent and all this other stuff. And so it would have been so easy not to deal with that pain and that work ethic and just go hang out with my buddies and stuff like that. And no one would have looked at me because of the way I grew up and think that I was making excuses. Right. 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 It wasn't expected. Right. But don't don't contract the excuse disease because the minute you do, once you allow yourself to, and Dom and I talk about this all the time, man, you know, we're, we're in the global pandemic, whatever we're calling it at this point in time, you know, there's a much worse disease out there than COVID and it's called the excuse disease. Mm-hmm. And so many people allow themselves to just make excuses one after another, after another. And it's accepted in our society. I would say it's encouraged. Well, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to be nice, but it, it is encouraged. And, and you know, so what I tell people, I tell our team, strive every day, get up, have your routine, and strive to get 1% better in everything you do. Because if you do that, think about the compounding effect. Well, if I get 1% better today, that's not much better than yesterday. Yeah, but it's better. Right. It's better. Think about if you do that every day for seven days. Think about if you do it for 90 days, 365 days. You're going to be, become a force multiplier for all the important people around you that make, that make that positive difference in your life. You're going to be making a positive difference in their lives. Couldn't have said it any better. Be a force multiplier. Thank you, Bobby. This is a ton of fun. This has been fun. Thank you. I get to go hunting now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Disruption Blueprint podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.rfgadvisory.com or schedule a call on our advisor resources page. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific training strategy. Information here may be provided in part by third-party sources. These sources are generally deemed to be reliable. However, neither our guests nor RFG advisory guarantee the accuracy of third-party sources. The views expressed here are those of our guest. They do not necessarily represent those of RFG advisory, its employees, or its clients. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. RFG Advisory is an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of RFG by the Commission, nor does it indicate that RFG or any associated investment advisory representative has attained a particular level of skill or ability.